Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our series looking at the life of David. Uh, and we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 20 this morning. By this point in David's life, just to kind of set the big picture here, Saul has, one, been rejected as king. David has been chosen to be the next king. Goliath has been defeated. And God has clearly shown himself to be with David. But as we'll see in our passage, David finds himself between promise and fulfillment, the already, not yet. Although he has been chosen and anointed king by God, Saul still reigns, and David is on the run. Uh, if you remember from last week, the ser David's sermon on David and Goliath, uh, David, uh, or excuse me, Saul thought he was sending David uh, into a fight that he was just bound to lose. He thought that David was going to be a sheep going into the slaughter. Uh, and obviously this didn't play out to his cards. And so uh, Saul was, was jealous and upset at what happened. And so uh, he turned against him and he, we're told from that time on, he eyed David. Uh, and so we find this morning David in this very terrifying and risky place. And so I want to invite you to stand now for the reading of God's word as we read 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and he came and he said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, neither great nor small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow's the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go. That I, may, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day of the evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to turn to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then you will know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if, my, if your father always or answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to him, to David, come, let us go into the field. So they both went into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then sin and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. 
And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go quickly, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself, where the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on the side of you, then take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat down, sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, after the new moon, David's place was still empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave for me to go to Bethlehem and said, let me go from our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. And then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put him to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in a fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with, the, with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy and said, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave the weapons to his boy and said to him, go, carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both to us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would speak now to our hearts. Help us to see your hesed love and to know you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a long scripture reading. Thank you for standing. Um, so a Jew 
and a former Nazi scientist walk into a meeting. It kind of sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's not. The location of the meeting was the Hay Adams Hotel, just across the street from the White House. And the year was roughly 1959. It had been just a little over a decade since the Holocaust. On the one side of the table was Werner von Braun, a former Nazi scientist who, who was responsible for developing the world's first ballistic missile under Adolf Hitler. On the other side of the table was Dr. Abe Silverstein, the son of a Jewish family who had immigrated from Eastern Europe and who was the man responsible for choosing the name Apollo for what is now known as the Apollo missions. Their reason for meeting? To figure out what kind of fuel was needed to reach the moon. Together they would become instrumental in the success of the Apollo missions. However, what's interesting about their relationship, though, is that their relationship as a Jew and as a German under Hitler was not unique within the NASA program. In fact, during the Apollo program, which landed Americans on the moon six times between 1969 and 1972, NASA was actually filled with both Jewish scientists and a large group of Germans who served under Hitler during World War II which adds to our appreciation for this incredible success of the Apollo missions. These two groups, which had a thousand reasons not to work together, were able to set aside their differences, their hurts, their past guilt, and collaborate, and even for some of them to form long-lasting friendships. But what, but the big question is, why? Why were they able to do this? Well, it's widely agreed among their peers that there is something greater than all their differences and hurts that united them, enabled them to move forward. Yes, they love science, they love space, they love engineering, but they shared something even greater than that. They all truly believed that they could get to the moon and that they needed each other in order to do so. Failure was simply not an option. Uh, because the U.S. and their families were depending on them. And so, that's the thing about friendships, isn't it? There's a common goal, a common cause, a common passion can bring even the most unlikely people together. And that is precisely what's so perplexing about David and Jonathan's friendship. On the surface, there seems to be no good reason why they were to become friends. Everything on the surface seemed to point to the opposite, to the contrary. Just think about it, right? Jonathan here is the heir to the throne. Who is the greatest and biggest threat at this point? Well, the guy who just defeated Goliath. The guy in whom everyone is singing about, David has, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. This is the guy who is enemy number one, the natural person for Jonathan to be opposed to. Not only is Jonathan the heir to the throne, but he's also the son. He's the son of Saul, right? If, as I mentioned earlier, Saul set his, his eye against David from that point on, right? If, if you're thinking, right, as a son, like how could I irk my father? Like what would get under his skin the most, right? What would drive the biggest wedge between him and I? It would be to befriend his enemy, right? To befriend David. From an earthly perspective, it just doesn't make sense why Jonathan and David are friends. 
And consider David in our passage, verse 1. We're introduced to David as a man who's on the run. He fled from, we're told, Ramah. Ramah was a city just north of Gibba. Gibba was kind of like the headquarters of Saul uh, and Jonathan. And so he had fled to Ramah earlier. Why? Because Saul tried to kill him. And so he fled to get away. Now we're told that David is fleeing from Ramah, right? Okay, if you're David and you're fleeing from Saul, who's trying to kill you, who has chased after you and sent assassins after you, where would you go? Well, I'll tell you the last place you'll go. You would go the last place you would go is back to Gibba to Jonathan. You just wouldn't do that. It just doesn't make sense. If you're wondering, like, what do these pastors think about in their offices all day? This is the kind of stuff that we rack our brain around all the time. There's so many perplexities in this passage. It just doesn't make sense. Jonathan is the son, the confident, confidant of the enemy. He has every reason in the world to betray David. It is a puzzling situation. But what I want to suggest this morning, though, is like these two groups of scientists and engineers earlier, I think that there's something greater at play. I think there's something bigger motivating these seemingly irrational actions that's only hinted at in our passage. So let's jump into the story. David, David, right, is on the run. He's running from Saul, uh, and, and he turns to Jonathan. Why? Well, we're told in verse 1, one of the reasons why he comes is because he has some questions. Notice he asks some questions at the beginning. He says, he says to him, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is the sin before my father that he seeks my life? Well, perhaps David is kind of looking for any kind of consolation, right? Just to kind of help him make sense of the situation. Like he doesn't quite understand why Saul, his dad, has it out for him. He doesn't get it. Um, and you're thinking, David, duh, you know why. He's wanting, right? And so verse 2, right, Jonathan, what we get back is he answers very confidently that he's obviously not aware that that David has been on the run, right? He's like, no, 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 no. My father would not chase after you at this point, right, without talking to me, right? And perhaps to the, you know, to give Jonathan credit, earlier in the previous chapter, he actually had talked um, to his father. His father had mentioned that he wanted to kill David. And so Jonathan reasoned with his father, and he told him, it doesn't make sense, Dad, why you want to kill David. After all, he's, done, he's been nothing but faithful to you. He's fought in all your wars. He's fought all your battles. He defeated Goliath, your biggest enemy. It doesn't make sense. And so Saul vowed to Jonathan that he actually wouldn't kill uh, David. Obviously, things had changed, and, and Jonathan was unaware of this. So we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And so he responds rather strongly. Then we get to verse 3. David is going to respond with even greater confidence. He's going to say, no, 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 no. Perhaps you have been naively confused, right, uh, and mistaken. The situation, as David sees it, is this. Your father knows that for whatever reason, I've found favor in your eyes, Jonathan, okay? And he's not going to tell you his real intentions and what he plans to do, okay? Because he knows that you like me, okay? And so, but trust me, there is not but a step between death and me and death, right? That, and from his perspective, right, David, like, Death is imminent for David. Like, he, this is a real situation, right? This isn't conjecture for David. This is an obvious fact, since chapter 18, there have been nine attempts on David's life, okay? Three of which have been by spear, which I don't know what that tells you about Saul's aim. Uh, two, by occasion of war and fighting, right? He was hoping to send him into war just like he did with Goliath and that he'd die. 
and then four times by assassination, okay? This is a real threat on David's life. This isn't a video game. This isn't pretend. David is running for his life, okay? There is but a step between me and death. Well, here we find our first clue. We're told that for whatever reason, David is aware that Jonathan uh, has uh, has favors him for whatever reason. Uh, we don't know exactly why uh, that he finds favor. Uh, and perhaps this is why David comes to Jonathan for help. It's because he knows he has this favor. But as we all know, favor comes and goes, does it not? We fall in and out of favor within our relationships all the time, right? Uh, especially when competing interests like money and power and comfort are thrown into the mix, right? Uh, it's easy to do that. We all know what it's like to be betrayed. We all know what it's like to have broken trust between even family members and friends and colleagues and business partners. Uh, we know what it's like for that to be case. And so to me, there has to be more of a reason for him to go to ground zero, for him to put himself in immediate danger in this situation. Uh, favor doesn't seem to cut it. Well, then we get to verse 4. Jonathan, he says, is willing to test the facts, all right? He's willing to be wrong. He's willing to test this. And so he tells David, whatever you say, I'll do for you, okay? And then we get to verses 5 through 7, and David's going to lay out this plan, okay? Tomorrow is the new moon festival. Every month, the new moon comes around, full moon, and then they're, they're going to sit down at the king's table and have a meal together. And it's expected that David would come. And so, but David, for obvious reasons, isn't going to come, okay? He's not going to show up there. And he wants Jonathan to, to basically cover for him and tell him that he gave him an excused absence so that he could go back home and offer uh, and participate in this annual sacrifice that was going on in his hometown. So that's the, this is the plan that's coming around. And, and then we're told, based off of Saul's response to the excuse, Jonathan, it will be clear to Jonathan whether his father intends to kill David or to help David, right? That's it. In the meantime, David is going to be hiding out in the field awaiting the verdict. Again, okay, this doesn't really make much sense, right? David is confident that his father, that Saul is trying to kill him, right? This is for Jonathan's sake, why would you come here and, tr and help Jonathan understand the situation and put yourself in imminent risk, right, if in imminent danger, if you already know the answer to the question, right? It doesn't make lots of sense. And yet, verse 8 gives us another clue. Verse 8, look there. It says, therefore, deal kindly. That word kindly is the Hebrew word hesed, okay? Which is the word that's translated steadfast love in, in, in the Bible here. With, it says, therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you, okay? So there's this mention of a covenant. Well, this covenant goes back to chapter 18, okay? It's a reference to a covenant that Jonathan made. So Jonathan ends up making a covenant with David because he loved him with his own, as his own soul, we're told. So there's a few things we know about this covenant. One, it's voluntary. So Jonathan voluntarily makes a covenant with David, okay? Secondly, it was motivated by love. For whatever reason, at the height of David's success, Rather than being jealous like his father, which is the natural thing to do, right? Uh, instead, da Jonathan loved 
David. Again, to me, this is not enough reason to go back and put yourself in immediate danger, right? Covenants, we know, are broken between humans all the time, right? We see that all the time. We, one, sin leaves no guarantee of a covenant. We know this, uh, we're familiar with covenants because of marriage, right? In marriage, we make a covenant. We take vows as different partners, right? And yet, there's divorce, right? We know this. We know that this exists, right? And so, to some degree, um, this doesn't make sense. And this is especially important because remember, this is a covenant between, not spouses, but between uh, a should-be enemy, right? It's one thing to think that your spouse, who you share memories with, you share finances with, you share children with, you share life and uh, memories with, all these things would, would keep their vows. It's one thing to think that they will. It's another thing to think that your should-be enemy would do the same thing, right? It just doesn't make sense. Some of y'all are going to think, man, Chris has trust issues, right? Uh, again, right, I think there's something greater at play, right? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up, right? So verse 9 through 11, after David affirms his guilt-free conscience, Jonathan concurs with this plan, and, and, uh, and they follow through, right? Which again, he, he's going to reaffirm to David that he's going to follow through, which makes sense because David needs some reassurance in this moment. Uh, and then we go on to verses 14 through 17. When we come here, there's going to be an interesting turn, okay? All of a sudden, it's not David who is concerned. Who's concerned in the passage? It's Jonathan. Jonathan, all of a sudden now, is concerned for his life. We move from reassuring David to reassuring Jonathan, right? And here, for the first time in our passage... We see the cost of Jonathan being highlighted, okay? Here, this is, we got to understand this, the weight of this. By saying yes to David, Jonathan is in effect saying no to a number of other things. He's saying no to the kingship. He's saying no to his father and his relationship with his father. He's saying no to power, security, comfort, all the things that come with the power of being king. He's saying no to all of these things in order to help David. And so Jonathan is now going to ask David to show him the same kind of steadfast love, the Hesed love that I mentioned earlier, to him and also to his family that he intends to show to David by following through with the plan. David agrees and a covenant between them and Jonathan's descendants is made. Again, here's my skepticism, why would David do this, right? It doesn't make sense. Standard practice at this time is this. You purge anyone who has any kind of rightful claim to the throne. You get rid of them. You kill them. You're done, right? Because they're a threat. You get rid of them. That's standard practice. That's what you do at this point. And you don't promise eternal protection, which is what he does for Jonathan. Doesn't make sense. Verses 18 through 23. They're still out in the field. They finalize their plan. David's going to hide. Jonathan's going to come out to the field, and he's going to do a little target practice with his bow and arrow, and he's going to bring a boy along with him, okay? And there, he's going to give a signal to David, and the way he's going to give the signal is that he's going to shoot an arrow, some arrows. And if he says to the boy that the arrows are beside you, that means it's safe, David. You don't have to worry. If he shoots it beyond the boy, and he tells the boy it's beyond you, that means run, Get out of town. Like, it's not good. It's not safe, okay? David is going to agree to the plan. 
and the plan's going to move forward. So then we get to verse 24 through 40, okay? So this is the plan. So all the planning's done. Now the plan's taking place, okay? It's new moon. Everyone is present minus David, okay? Saul notices it, and he assumes that maybe David is ritually unclean, okay? He's unclean. Perhaps he came in contact with a dead body. He's a soldier. That's plausible, right? Uh, perhaps that's why he's not here, and he can't be here. So he doesn't think anything of it. Day two comes around. David is still not present. At this point, Saul is a little annoyed, okay? Uh, he requires on Jonathan. Jonathan tells him. Uh, he feeds him the line, the excused absence, just as they agreed in the plan. Uh, but this time, Saul is fuming mad. He's fuming mad. He yells out a bunch of obscenities directed at Jonathan, and he chucks a spear at him. To Saul, right, we finally kind of see uh, what Saul thinks about this friendship in verse uh, 31. Look there. It says, For as long as the son of Jesse, being David, lives on this earth, neither you, Jonathan, nor your kingdom shall be established. Essentially, he's saying, Jonathan, you don't get it. You don't get it. Like, your future is dependent on whether David is dead or alive, right? It all depends on that. You don't get it. You are being foolish. You're being senseless. It doesn't make sense while you're doing this. So Saul would agree with me. That's good, um, right? And so Jonathan leaves mad and grieved, not of himself, but for David. That's remarkable, by the way. We could preach on that for a while. He's more concerned in this moment about David than he is about himself. Um, then he goes to the field as planned with the arrow boy. He shoots the arrows. Then he says to the arrow boy, the, the arrow is beyond you, which signals to David, run. It's not safe, right? At this point, Jonathan sends the arrow boy back into town. They pick up in verse one, the final two verses of our passage. David comes out of hiding. Jonathan and David kiss. This is reminiscent of like Genesis 33 with, with Jacob and Esau. They fall on each other's necks. They kiss, right? It's reminiscent of Genesis 45 when Joseph and his brothers, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, they fall on each other's necks. They kiss one another. Just a normal thing, right? David lives to see another day. Jonathan returns. And still we're left with a question. Why? Why? Put yourself at risk. Why do all of this? Is a covenant enough? Is deep relationship and deep friendship and loyalty, is that enough? In an ordinary situation, that would probably make sense, right? But this is no ordinary situation. This is high stakes. I think the key, one of the keys, is actually in, two, in chapter 18 earlier. You see, right after Jonathan makes that initial covenant with David... Uh, in chapter 18, we're told this in verse 4. He's, we're told that Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him, and he gave it to David. This is a big deal, okay? This is no small moment. And giving the robe to David, which was a sign of royalty, he was acknowledging God's sovereign choice in choosing David to be the next king and not him. And, but, but again, we ask why. Why form a covenant with David? Why hand over the keys to the kingdom? Why not fight back, right? Why not come up with a plan? Why roll over? Well, the immediate context of these actions is chapter 17. It's what David preached on last week. David and Goliath defeating Goliath. 
right? If there's anything from that chapter in that moment that was abundantly clear from that day, it was this, that God was with David. Our text shows that Jonathan had this understanding as well. Look at verse 13. It says, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. The New Living Translation puts it this way. He says, May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. In saying this, Jonathan is acknowledging that David's kingship is Yahweh's sovereign choice. Do you see that? At the end of the day, Unlike his father, Jonathan did what he did for David because he was submitted to the will of God. He was, at the end of the day, you don't submit yourself to the will of God unless you're trusting in his hesed love, right? At the end of the day, both Jonathan and David were trusting in the same thing. They were trusting in Yahweh's hesed love. Both appeal to Yahweh's hesed love. David in verse 8 says, deal kindly with me. Right? Jonathan in verse 14 says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. For Jonathan, he was trusted in Yahweh's hesed love to provide for him and all of his descendants' future needs. Like the thief on the cross who is looking towards the greater king, he says, the thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jonathan is banking and trusting in the Hesed love of the Lord. For David, he was trusting in Yahweh's Hesed love to protect him and to do what he promised. David could risk it all because he was the Lord's anointed and the Lord was with him. Well, okay, why make a big deal about all this? So what? What, what does this passage mean for us, right? That's the question we want to answer. That's why we came here. I have two points. Oftentimes, I think God chooses to communicate his hesed love through his people, okay? Through Jonathan, right? The most unlikely of people for David, David experiences Yahweh's care, Yahweh's provision, Yahweh's reassurance, Yahweh's care for him in so many ways. Later on, get this, David is going to make good on his promise to Jonathan and to his descendants. In, in 2 Samuel 9, Jonathan has a disabled son named Mephibosheth. And he's going to say to him this. He's going to call him to himself, and he's going to say this. He says, do not fear. Why does he say do not fear? David say that? Well, it's because Mephibosheth is terrified that he's going to kill him because that's what you do with sons of former kings. But he says this, do not fear. For I will show you kindness, Hesed. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table and no one else's forever. Do you hear that? That is shocking grace. Shocking grace, right? I love hearing stories about people who get unexpected bonuses from work, right? And they, they take the cash, right? And they go to restaurants and they, they leave $100 tips for their waitresses, right? That's shocking grace, right? I love stories of, of people who sign up for meal trains, right? And they're on tight budgets and yet they, they give meals to provide for hurting and needing families. That's grace. 
right? I, I love when people in the middle of their busy day, right, with lots of other contexts, right, they take the time in their day to call some, a friend who is hurting and in pain to encourage them. That's grace. That is being an extension of the Hesed love of Yahweh. Secondly, it's this. God's Hesed love also compels us to forsake the kingdom of self for the sake of him. Remember Jonathan? It was costly what he did. We can't, we can't avoid that, right? It was costly what he gave up. What he did was truly great. In choosing the Lord and David, he forsook his father, his family. He forsook his right to the throne, to power, authority, comfort, security, pleasures, and everything else that came from it, right? Jonathan did that because he was looking forward to the Hesed love of God. You and I do these things. You and I are enabled to, to give of ourselves in these ways because we look back to the Hesed love of God demonstrated on the cross. We look back to redemption. We look back to the greatest display of love in the world on the cross. On the cross, God showed that he was willing to give up everything, even the thing that he held most dear to gain the ones who did not want anything to do with him, to gain you and I. And here's the thing, friends. God doesn't ask us to do what he hasn't already done himself. You and I have the privilege of sharing the Hesed love of God, right? And so the challenge for us is this, to give all and to forsake all because of the Hesed love of God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we... We're in awe. We're in awe of you. We're in awe of your Hesed love. We're in awe that you would bring enemies, people who wanted nothing to do with you, who deserved nothing from you, that you would give up everything to draw them to yourself because of your Hesed love. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that would, would know that in a deep way and that we would be motivated to, to, to be an extension of that love to others those who are hurting, those who are in need, those who we faithfully long, walk alongside of, to our, to our children, to our spouses, to our friends and family. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, we just thank you for this word. We pray that it would, we would go remembering your faithful love to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.